All right, so um, today as we start our Sunday school, we are kind of continuing um, with what we finished last week. It, this is a kind of, there's a lot of things going on in the, the middle part of the 18th century, um, working up toward the American Revolution. So um, it's hard to figure out which one to do first. So because we did the Wesleys last week, I wanted to do George Whitfield this week. Um, but we probably need to cover both um, the nature of religion in the colonies um, as we lead up to the revolution to kind of give us an understanding of where the, the colonies were and the founding of our country, um, but then also covering the First Great Awakening, which we will talk about today, and then Jonathan Edwards, who stands as kind of a, um, uh, I almost said a monster, but that's not quite the word I really wanted to use, <clears throat> stands as a monumental figure over the um, the First Great Awakening and over the 18th century. We turn to one of his uh, contemporaries, though, today, who was associated with um, the Wesleys in England before spending a good portion of his life in America, George Whitfield. Um, George was born in 1714 um, in Gloucester in England. Um, his parents were innkeepers uh, at the time. Um, his father died when he was very young. I think he was two when his father died. Um, he did the best he could in order to um, help his family make ends meet, um, helping mom run the inn. Um, by the time he was college age, um, the inn had come upon hard times. They were um, decently poor. He got um, a chance to go to Oxford, which he took uh, by all accounts, an incredibly bright man. Um, <clears throat> not just, um, and we, we don't say that simply because he went to Oxford. Most people who go to Oxford are bright people. Um, but we say that also just from the life that he lived and the contemporaries that he, in the circles that he ran in, um, this was a report that many people made about him was that he was an incredibly bright man. Um, when he, early in his life, he showed this, um, this thirst for and promise in the theater. Um, and so this will be something that is prominent in his ministry. Um, it doesn't sound like that's something that is typically used in the ministry, but nevertheless, it, it was really used in his. Um, but he goes to Oxford to study. Uh, while he's there, he gets free tuition. His family's poor, but he has to um, be there as a servitor, um, which is a type of student who then helps the other wealthy students. And by help, um, the name servitor is really quite descriptive of what he did. He served them. So this included like cleaning their rooms, carrying their books, um, helping them bathe. Uh, he was by all means basically, you know, if you, if you watch Downton Abbey and you see them like their servers are like dress them and the butlers who take care of that that is probably a decentish picture of what George was doing for other students at the school at the time, which I think would have been an incredibly hard thing um, for somebody who was at the same school as them, getting the same education as them, uh, to be serving his fellow students would have naturally made him I, I just think in my own head, it would have naturally made him uh, feel as though he were less than them. But uh, we'd have no reports as to how he, can. I don't have anything to say about how Whitfield actually described this time of his life or anything like that. While he was there, he did meet the Wesleys. He was part of the Holy Club that we talked about last time um, that had this sort of rigorous schedule of um, meeting together, reading scripture, praying, uh, would, would spend time fasting, um, so he, he was part of that. He was very rigorous in his, um, in his younger life. He eventually read the, um, the book, um, I can't find it now, by Henry Schugel, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. Um, and it was during that time, while part of the Holy Club, that he kind of had this conversion experience um, where, kind of like Wesley did at Aldersgate, um, and, and he truly began to know the Lord. He um, eventually uh, found his way into the, the ministry by way of the Anglican ministry. Um, 
he was ordained a deacon and preached his first sermon in 1736, so at the ripe old age of 22. Um, by 1738, he found himself um, in Savannah, which is where Wesley had been. Um, his time in Savannah um, was where he started to preach, um, and he found the two great passions in his life. Um, does anybody know what those passions were? The two things that he's remembered for. One was something we already mentioned is preaching. So that's, and what? An orphanage. So his, his, great, his great desire um, was to, to start an orphanage and to fund an orphanage, which will become both one of his lasting legacies and also will provide one of the major critiques of his life. Um, if not the critique of his life, um, both for the good and the bad, this orphanage kind of takes over. Um, and we'll see the ways in which that plays through his life. Um, he was um, known for his outdoor preaching. He was the one who, uh, when he returned, and he would make several trips. Uh, trips across the Atlantic weren't easy back then. Um, the you know, the six-hour flights weren't there. There were, there were, you know, months, weeks to months traveling on the ocean. He made 13 trips back and forth. Um, you know, one would have done. You could have stayed in the good old U.S. of A., uh, but he, he decided to go back to the homeland and then come back and go back and go back. It was all his homeland. I know he thought that, but he was wrong. Um, so he, he makes all these trips back and forth. He begun, begins to get famous in England, um, for his open-air preaching, which is what he eventually leads John to do, um, but he was incredibly gifted at it. Um, the reports of what Whitfield is able to do uh, in open-air preaching was almost unbelievable. Um, there are reports of him being able to preach, again, without the aid of microphone. I can't even speak to the, you know, 15 to 20 people who are in here uh, without a microphone. Uh, but he was able to speak in the open air with birds chirping, um, kids screaming and yelling, uh, to upwards of 20, and some reports include 30,000 people. Um, they said that he could be heard uh, some uh, five to 600 feet away, as clear as a bell. Um, he had a great vo voice for oratory. Um, he was probably the best-known man in the colonies at that time. Um, again, word doesn't travel all that fast, but, but Whitfield's fame spread very quickly. Um, he ended up preaching over 1,000 times per year for over 30 years, uh, somewhere north of 18,000 sermons, um, 12,000 different talks or devotionals. Um, he preached at times up to 60 hours a week, um, and you might be thinking, what did that leave him time to do? And the answer is it left him time to do almost nothing. Uh, when he wanted to study, um, he would get on a boat and go back to England. So that seems to be like the only time that he got to study was when he was traveling in between the countries. When he got to the countries, he would spend his time preaching. Um, he was incredibly gifted in his preaching. And again, the theater, uh, he would at times go into incredibly elaborate reenactments of biblical dramas. Um, and this was something that was, again, incredibly distinctive about Whitfield um, and, frankly, a, a real innovation in preaching. And uh, those words don't always go together. So innovation and preachings don't happen all that often. Um, I, I know because I do it. You just kind of do the same thing. Um, but when we contrast this with what Edwards does, um, the two couldn't be more different. Does anybody know what, how Jonathan Edwards preached? So we, we, like, if you know his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, right? Um, that seems like a, people, people describe it as a fiery sermon. They describe it as, as a sermon that is meant to, you know, burn the hearts of, of sinners. And how did Jonathan present that to people? He read it in an absolute monotone. Right? There was no emotion. There was nothing like that. So it's filled with these elaborate, it's, uh, a lot of Edwards' writings are filled with these beautiful uh, illustrations and beautiful allegories for what, what the Christian life is, is like and what's going on. And 
um, the man would get up and he would just read it in this flat monotone. Um, and Whitfield wasn't like that at all. Whitfield was an incredibly animated guy, um, so much so that many of his opponents would make fun of the way that he did things. And frankly, it did not suit many of the Americans at all. They weren't Americans. Many of the colonists at all. And even many people in England thought that this was just way too far over the top. Um, but he got great responses from people. Um, it was uh, probably... 85% of the people in the colonies at that time knew of him. Um, he made the longest horseback journey in, by any white man at that time in the colonies, going up and down the colonies, doing these preaching tours. Um, so he was, he was probably the first Christian celebrity. Um, uh, now, there are other people who could vie for that, but in, in the true sense of celebrity, uh, you have people who were very famous back in the day. John Chrysostom was incredibly famous for his preaching. Um, uh, Augustine was very famous for his, his writing, and, and you have people like that every now and then. Um, obviously, the popes were pretty famous, right? People knew of them. Um, but he became sort of a celebrity all on his own, and not just because of the things he was doing as a churchman, but be, not because of the things that he was saying, but almost because of the way that he said them. So his, his fame spread up and down the coast for that. Um, to give some, some context for that crowd thing, so let's say he preached to a crowd of 20,000 people. Um, the entire population of Boston was what when he was preaching to hordes of 20,000 people? Boston, Massachusetts would claim a population of what when he did that? Anyone want to take a stab at that? 8,000. So that's like two Bostons put together. Um, now, London at the time boasted some 700,000 people. So London, obviously much more populous, but in, in England, it was said that he preached to, you know, he would estimate 20,000 at times, but people who followed him would estimate up to 30,000 people. Um, he would make friends and enemies along the way. Um, perhaps the best-known friend that he would make along the way was um, Ben Franklin. Um, he was a good friend. Uh, Franklin admired his rhetorical skills, and Franklin admired um, something that I don't think I admire in him, and that was the fact that it was an open call to preaching without any sort of grounding in the church at all. Um, and so Ben was a big fan of ecumenism, uh, basically that, you know, people just kind of brotherly love and all that good stuff without having any grounding in the church. He appreciated that, that fact. They, they wrote back and forth um, quite a bit. Um, he really did appreciate them. Uh, both appreciated one another, but Franklin was, was just quite obviously never converted. Um, one of the things that he did not, uh, people that he did not get along with for a good portion of his life was John Wesley. So um, he left England when Wesley had gone back to England. Um, and by this time, by the time Wesley went back to England, Whitfield was much better known than him, and he had quite a following in England. Um, Wesley was not a fan of Calvinism and was not a fan of predestination. Um, the Church of England at that time had, had a, a general understanding of predestination. Um, Wesley went back to England while um, Whitfield came over to the colonies, and Wesley laid into predestination and laid into um, Whitfield's preaching of predestination. Um, this led to, as you would imagine, quite a bit of acrimony between the two, um, both of them saying incredibly horrible things about one another. Um, neither covered themselves with much glory in, in their correspondences. Um, you know, Wesley would say that they make God basically into Satan by this. Um, Whitfield is saying things about um, Wesley and other folks within the church who are undermining his work as though they are devils themselves. And so um, there's a lot of this back and forth. The good news is that, that Wesley and Whitfield are able to patch things back together. Wesley um, is asked to preach Whitfield's um, funeral service when he dies, and uh, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good story about not how they acted, but their reconciliation, getting over those sort of differences and being able to see the good in one another. Um, 
Sarah Edwards once said about his, um, uh, about um, Whitfield's preaching, he's a born orator. You have already heard of his deep-toned yet clear and melodious voice. Oh, it is perfect music to listen to that alone. You remember that David Hume thought it worth going 20 miles to hear him speak, and Garrick, um, who was an actor uh, at the time, a famous actor, said he could move men to tears in pronouncing the word Mesopotamia, which is like a famous thing that people say about Whitfield, that, that like hearing him say random words would like melt people to like puddles of emotion. And so this, this idea of mes- like him saying the word Mesopotamia just... Uh, I think it's funnier because it's the word Mesopotamia. It's not like like saying the name Jesus Christ would melt them, but like Mesopotamia. And and I, this is one of those times where you're like, I I would love to hear a recording of that just to hear like how awesome would you have to say the word Mesopotamia to make somebody weep at the hearing of that. So. Um, I think the funniest thing about that is, is the word. It's not even the, the outrageous comment that hearing him pronounce a word can make people weep, which is just stupid. Uh, <laughs> like, get, get control of yourself, people. That's not, it's, it's not even spiritual. Uh, it's, it's truly wonderful. She, she goes on to say, it's truly wonderful to see what a spell, which is an interesting, it, this whole sentence is really interesting. Sarah Edwards, who is John Edwards' wife, says, It is truly wonderful to see what a spell this preacher often casts over an audience by proclaiming the simplest truths of the Bible. Um, it's an interesting way to put it, spell that he casts over them. Um, at any rate, uh, he goes on to have an incredibly famous career preaching and teaching um, as far as Wesley goes, here are some of the things that um, Wesley said about predestination and said about um, the work that um, Whitfield was doing in his preaching. Uh, God condemned millions of souls to everlasting fire for want of the grace that he will not give them. Surely God would not willingly doom his creatures, whether they will or no, to endless misery. Um, and so... He said, um, you represent God as worse than the devil is kind of what he did. So those really strong words um, that go back and forth. All at the same time, Whitfield um, has very, very difficult things to say about him. Um, you, you find that Whitfield, like many men who are really, really good at what they do, um, take pride in it, and anyone who critiques what they do, what they say, um, and, and how he says it, uh, he has a very strong reaction to it. Um, Whitfield would publish a number of journals um, along the way. These journals were meant to both kind of capture him and his preaching and his teaching. Um, And in these journals, he oftentimes attacked anybody who would have said anything wrong or bad about him. Um, Not not always in a good way, but um, sometimes in in very malicious ways as well. one of the great things that Whitfield is known for, again, is that orphanage. So he shows up in Georgia, and he realizes um, right away that there's this great need for an orphanage. And um, he desires very strongly to get it, it going. And he says that once he gets this idea in his head, it is one of the, the two great passions of his life. Um, it really is the great passion of his life. Um, what he ends up doing is using money that is gained from his preaching to help support the orphanage. Truth be told, um, the orphanage was never going to stand on its own two feet. Um, In 1735, slavery was actually outlawed in the state of Georgia. So, um, which is a little-known fact. I think most people don't know that. Um, it, it, it's not quite as nice as it sounds. Uh, slavery was outlawed, but, but black people were also not allowed to live there. So, you know, you take the good, you take the bad. They said um, there were, you could ha- not, they couldn't be residents of the state. So um, people of African descent were not allowed to reside in the state of Georgia, but that also precluded them from being enslaved in the state of Georgia. Um, so 
seems like it's good. It's not all that great, but nevertheless, um, it was outlawed. Whitfield, who at one point in his life had been a staunch critiquer of slavery because he always asserted the true and full humanity and the need for salvation of black people. Um, he, he upheld that. Nevertheless, when he had this passion for his orphanage, um, knowing that finances were just n- always going to be tough, he said, basically, the only way that this is ever going to work is if we can have slaves. So in order to make the orphanage work, we need to get slaves to help us economically. And so he worked hard to get the state of Georgia to allow African-descended people to reside in Georgia so that they could also be enslaved in Georgia. And he worked tirelessly for years to do this. Um, It wasn't until um, between 1745 or 1750 where Georgia finally allows slaves back into their state, specifically for um, not, not to live there as free people, but only to live there as slaves. Um, this is what um, the Bethsaida Orphanage is what it was called. Um, this is what he said about that particular thing. Um, had Negroes been allowed, I should now have had a sufficiency to support a great many orphans without expending above half the sum that has been laid out. Um, and then he also saw the legalization of slavery as part of, uh, as a part personal victory and part of the divine will. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty horrible thing. Um, we want to paint Whitfield in the right light. Um, so we need to understand the way in which he viewed slaves and the way he viewed Africans, um, which is confused and uh, more good than others, but not biblical. Um, he was a great championer of their rights, actually. So he was one of the first people that, that would argue that African Americans have, um, we African Americans, people of African descent at that time, um, have actual living rights, that they are not to be treated um, with malicious intent. Um, he, he has quotes where he says, um, <clears throat> let me find that quote. Uh, he, he sees the way, um, specifically people in South Carolina, um, I don't know, it, this just happened to be an, an, something that happened in South Carolina. Certainly, slaves were treated maliciously um, around the colonies where they were held. Uh, but seeing how they had been treated, he wrote a pamphlet and said, uh, your dogs are caressed and fondled at your tables, but your slaves who are frequently styled as dogs or beasts have not equal privilege. Um, and so he goes on to chastise these people who own slaves for how they treat those slaves. Um, that's great. The real problem, the real problem is that no matter how much you want to say that they have rights, what Whitfield wasn't ever campaigning for was the right to have slavery. What Whitfield was campaigning for was the right to enslave black people. You'll notice that he doesn't say, let's find some poor white people and make them work for us. That didn't happen. He, he couldn't look at the population of Georgia and say, some of these people should be enslaved. He said, we should go get Africans and enslave them. And there's a real problem with his then attitude about the way in which slave masters treat their slaves. The way in which he sets this out is that slaves by nature are people who are to be owned. If you own that thing, you own it. If you're going to treat them like their possessions, that is automatically treating them as less than humanity. So the very fact that he would say, oh, you treat your dogs so well, I think that the owners of these slaves would come back and say, but they're ours to treat as we want. So Whitfield sets up the system that he then laments when people who are in the system take that system to its rightful end. If we're going to have people as possessions, then we get to treat them as possessions. We don't have to treat them like 
we treat our dog. I don't, we don't treat our cats like we treat our dogs, maybe they would say, or, or we've got animals that we love more than others. We've got this dog that we really love and this scoundrel out here, and we don't love him quite as much. We let the, the boy kick him. So, you know, you don't, you don't get to tell us how we treat our animals, and if we're going to style them as animals, then we get to treat them as, as we want to. Um, it's a true black eye on, on Whitfield. Um, he... Uh, and the fact that he expended a huge portion of his life preaching the gospel and preaching the gospel to black people while at the same time enslaving them is just a, an incredible, incredibly difficult thing to reconcile, right? Um, and, and when we talk about blind spots in people, this is the kind of stuff we mean. He just, Wesley went after him again and again and again about the wickedness of slavery, and Whitfield was just not having it. So when you, we talk about men of their time, we'll talk about Edwards this way too. One of the things that people want to say, well, they were just men of their time. Well, listen, men of their time knew and had biblical arguments put before them that slavery was wicked. It's not as though Charles and John Wesley didn't exist and that John Wesley wasn't writing about abolitionism from the very get-go, right? It's not that, that Whitfield had never heard these arguments. Whitfield just said, but my orphanage. It literally, it was just, but my orphanage. And, and so uh, the continual enslavement of people in Georgia, um, the, the, the resumption of slavery in Georgia, the continual enslavement of people in Georgia and other places um, was due to George Whitfield, full stop. Um, uh, this is one of the reasons why in 2020, uh, although he had a hand in founding the University of Pennsylvania, in a way, they removed his statue um, because he, this isn't like somebody who was slavery adjacent. He was, he was just pro-slavery the whole way. And so the University of Pennsylvania did remove a statue of um, Whitfield uh, in 2020, probably rightly for that. Uh, we'll get back to uh, kind of analyzing his, his life. Um, his marriage, uh, he married later. Um, like Wesley, uh, it was not a very happy marriage. They didn't get along very well. Um, people, um, he, I don't know, it, it, part of it was just the busyness. Um, he was just nonstop, go, 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 preach, 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 and, and had very little time for a wife. One wonders why he took one. Um, to begin with, um, she seems to be a burden for him and he for her, and they were poorly matched and they were not happy together. Um, as far as being a celebrity, he spent a good period of his life um, amplifying his own accomplishments. And when we said something like he was probably the first Christian celebrity, um, he's probably the first modern Christian celebrity and that he had a very carefully tailored image. Um, he, was, he would send people out ahead of him um, with pamphlets so that crowds could be drawn when he would come to a city. Um, he would make sure that those pamphlets and the journal articles that he sent out, journals about his life and, and autobiography of what he was doing, put him in a good light. Um, they did not just highlight the sermons and specifically highlight the grace of God. They also highlighted the grace of God that was certainly and most most evidently working through George Whitfield. Um, and so if he, if there was, if if there was a man who could have an online presence in that time, uh, George Whitfield would have had one, and it would have been meticulously guarded. Um, it would have been run incredibly well. Um, and so he also, in the end, becomes very wealthy. Um, it's not at all clear how he becomes wealthy. Um, he says that he, in his, in his will, um, he says that it was a gift that was given to him um, very near the end of his life and that he doesn't know where it came from. He kind of blows it off. Um, but when it comes to the orphanage, um, he never gives an account. He's got a board of trustees, but he will not give them an account of the finances of the orphanage. So when he complains about the orphanage not being able to make it because of money, um, it is unclear what money he's talking about. He just he never gives much of an account. And this is one of the other themes of his life is that he just doesn't ever want to be held accountable to anybody. Um, he, it's, he's, he's an incredibly modern man. Like this is the start of the modern preacher in America. He just doesn't want to be held accountable to anybody. Um, when he dies, um, he gives away um, in modern money um, close to a million dollars um, 
uh, or at least $750,000 or so, more than that, almost $800,000. Um, most of it to friends, or most of it to the orphanage. He left well over a half a million dollars in today's money uh, to the orphanage, um, several hundred thousand dollars to family and friends. He had another couple hundred thousand that was earmarked for his wife should he die before she did. Um, so he was clearly a wealthy man, but it's unclear um, where that money came from and why it wasn't used for the orphanage earlier if the orphanage was in such dire straits. Um, but maybe by this time it wasn't because he did have slave labor to help it out. Um, he had a love of controversy. Uh, he said, the more I am opposed, the more joy I feel, um, which is a very odd thing. Um, so he didn't hide from controversy. Sometimes he directly walked into it. He was the kind of person who liked to poke the bear in the eye and then watch the reaction. Um, sometimes these were unavoidable. He didn't pick the fight with Wesley. Wesley kind of did that himself, um, but Whitfield didn't shy away from these things. Um, he oftentimes clashed with people in the church. Um, the entirety of his life, he lived under the sort of general umbrella of the Church of England, which is what most of the colonies were at that time, but he chafed at every single sign of authority that they had. Anytime anyone seemed to want to hold him accountable for something he said or something he did, he would just deny them. He called them lazy. He called them impious, um, sons of the devil. Uh, he, he reportedly said at one point in time, I don't need your authority. The whole world is my parish. I, basically, it's, it's a way for him to say, I can do what I want. I'm George Whitfield. Um, he was, again, completely sort of untied from the church, and this is part of the problem. It's a little bit different then, right? So if you go to a town and you preach, um, the main, the main um, churches that are there are going to be likely Church of England churches, Anglican churches. Uh, they could be Congregationalist or otherwise, but they're going to look pretty much the same. Um, but he is preaching to people and then moving on. Like, he is doing this sort of evangelism thing that I think is really difficult, where you convert people and then leave them without a home. Like, they're just sort of floating out around there. Um, which, again, what you're going to find is that um, the First Great Awakening and then the Second Great Awakening, there's a good book called Revival and Revivalism. Um, and in that, uh, I shouldn't have mentioned it because now I can't think of the author's name. Um, he's a famous historian, British historian. But he makes the argument that the First Great Awakening was an actual revival, that the Spirit of God worked and then what the Second Great Awakening tried to do was to use the methods of the First Great Awakening to achieve the same results, and thinking that it wasn't a movement of God. And so a lot of these preachers looked at the, the ministry of George Whitfield and what George Whitfield did and said, okay, that's what we need to do. And you see this in Southern Baptist life all the time when they have these mass evangelism rallies, um, which we don't do anymore. When we used to do those, that was because it worked once, right? And so we, we like to think, hey, if it worked once, it'll work again, and we just keep doing it. Um, it was probably a, a, lot of, a lot of what came from um, Whitfield himself. Uh, in respects, there's, there's a good deal of um, good that Whitfield did. Um, by all accounts, the, the first great awakening of which George Whitfield was a, if, if not the most prominent figure, probably not the best remembered figure, but, but there's no way in the colonies he wasn't the most prominent figure in the first great awakening, um, was a true spiritual revival. Like people were moved and they were moved by the spirit of God and they were converted and they were changed. Um, that, that is due in large part to God's use of George Whitfield and his talents and gifts. Um, his desire to um, practically work out the love of God in orphanages, there's no sense in which he didn't actually care for those children. Um, and, and even for, you know, children of African descendants who had come to his orphanage, um, he cared for them. Now, he didn't always care for them in the way we would like for them to be cared for. He was incredibly hard on them, um, but nevertheless, he... he did in his heart desire to do right by them. Um, I, I also would love to applaud his zeal in preaching. Um, I've, I'm not sure that I care for all of the theatrics, um, not knowing exactly what those were. We have very few descriptions of what those theatrics are and a lot more 
simply telling us that they were theatrics. Um, but at the very least, I think that he is right to complain about the lack of zeal when it comes to preaching that you find in a lot of these very austere churches. Um, that while emotion shouldn't be the primary thing, um, there is no sense in which emotion as a human response to things should not be used by a man of God. And I, I think that, that a zeal in preaching and a love for preaching the gospel is important, um, and that to be portrayed in how you preach. Um, and, and as far as Calvinism goes, you'll, you'll notice that the, probably the greatest evangelist in the history of the church was a staunch Calvinist and a, um, somebody who believed in predestination, which is how it ought to be. So he thought that people uh, could not be saved outside of God's chosen, choosing of them and moving in them, um, and yet he would, at the end of many sermons, say, uh, come poor, lost, undone sinner, just as you are to Christ. Um, it's what we want. It's what we, we ought to be living out. And I think that a lot of uh, Calvinism gets a wrong name because they don't see both sides of, of the doctrine and then how that doctrine is worked out. Obviously, there are many, many problems. Um, uh, slavery being a huge one. Um, and it's not just that he was for slavery, it is the lasting legacy that that leaves, that, that oversight in his life left. Um, it, it, it led to just devastating things that we're still paying for down the road um, as far as the church goes and as far as the church, especially in America, goes. Um, those, are, those are holes we have not yet dug ourselves out of. And he was a primary proponent of that, um, that that just can't be overlooked. No matter how much God might have used him in other respects, uh, it's just really hard to overlook that. Um, and I also would like to, I, I don't know exactly how I feel about this. How do, you, how do you feel about the fact that he preached, he went on these preaching tours, it seems, to evangelize people but also to raise money for his orphanage, right? Like, that's an odd thing. That seems, it's not, it's not like he was, he was doing it to get a, a jet, right? So it's not like Creflo Dollar. But it's also not pure as the driven snow, it doesn't seem. I, I don't know, how do you guys feel about that? Is that slightly icky to you, to use a theological term? Is that a little... Yeah. Yeah. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. Yeah, I think I think in his mind it would I'm going to guess on this. It's it's a lot of column A and a lot of column B. Like I I think that he did it out of a natural love for people to come to know the Lord. But he also did it because it, he could use that as an advantage to fund the orphanage. He yeah. I mean he had a he had a desire for preaching before he um, took up the the banner for orphans. So, yeah. 
I'm not sure. So one of the things that I would hesitate on with that, though, is, is at least that's clear. I'm not sure that he was, I, I don't think that he made it known that he was taking money for the orphanage. I, I, don't, I can't speak to that, but I understand what you're saying. Like, I don't, I'm saying that I don't know like, how he handled, like if he preached and people, they took up a collection and they thought that they were just funding more preaching, but they were funding an orphanage. I don't know if he was, because he was not up clear about other things in his life, like how he was, he was very secretive um, because he didn't want, it, honestly, it seems in his life like he just didn't want to be held accountable. So it's not, it's not clear how he took in the money or, I mean, I, it might be clear to others. I, I didn't find any reports about how they took in the money or how he spoke to people about why they were giving. Like, I'm not, I'm not sure if that's, that's clear. So it, it, you know, if you asked him, given the fact that he was really, really gung-ho about the orphanage, I don't think that he would have denied that. I think he would have just told people um, whether or not he came out and told them that to, at the beginning of it is, is another question entirely. So, so it was clearly a passion in his life, and he, he wasn't shy about telling people that. But I don't know if he made it, like, there was no clear accounting for the, the money, though. Right, and I'm sure that he thought of it that way as well. It does, it does fill me with a little bit, that, that particular feature of his ministry, um, I think is something that it, it fills me with a concern um, to be emulated in other people um, because it, it's, it's a, it, I don't know. The goal and the ends of preaching get changed pretty pretty quickly when the goal of your preaching tour is to make money, even if it's making money for a good good cause. Um, I, I I feel like that's a it, it's a that I'm not a fan of slippery slope arguments, but man, that slope is real slippery. Like that that's a wet grass situation. So yeah, so. <clears throat> Yeah, I don't, I don't, I can't imagine that they charged a fee for it because I don't think that they would have the people there to police 20,000 people. Like you couldn't, you couldn't charge per head. You would have no way of knowing who came and who heard. And um, there were probably just a lot of people who were bystanders who heard this guy preaching and stopped. And, and so I don't think they would have charged that way. My guess is that they took up collections at the end. So, yeah. Right, um, and, and that, that's tied in again to this larger picture of him as somebody who is above accountability, that he is within a system in the Anglican church that has got a clear hierarchy, and he continually thumbs his nose at it. Like, um, he wants to be part of the Anglican church, but he doesn't want to take, he, he is, he is a, so one of the things in, in thinking through him this week and, and reading about him this week, what, one of the things that he reminded me of um, was the podcast that um, Christianity Today did last year of um, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, uh, which is a church that a man named Mark Driscoll had for a number of years from like 95 to I think 2014 was when it fell apart. And, um, and Mark and George have a lot in common. Now, they have a lot in discommon as well, but this desire to, be, to not be held accountable for, for their misdeeds, their desire to always present themselves in the best light, um, their desire for controversy and to feed off that controversy, all of that like, is, is in the same vein. And his desire to not be held accountable by anybody is again probably one of the parts that I feel is almost the most difficult when you just he everything about him dissociated himself from the church he was a one-man operation he was a one-man show um he he wouldn't take any sort of authority over him from people in the church 
And when he preached, he didn't do it under the authority of a church. So you, you had people being converted and then had no home because there was like everything. And this is what we talked about with that Cartesian individualism, right? That this is where you see it starting to pay out in, in American life. Like the, this whole idea of not needing to be connected to a church is, is not part and parcel of people's lives back then. It's a, it's a bug. It's not a feature of their life. But that bug is going to weasel its way into being a feature of American life as you go forward. It's just, it's inevitable. And you see it from, you know, the rationalism of, of Rene Descartes in the latter part of the 1600s. You see it already working through somebody like George Whitfield in the middle of the 1700s. It, it doesn't take long. It doesn't take long. Um, and it's not even a it's not even a rational connection. People aren't thinking, he's not thinking like, he, Whitfield didn't pick up Rene Descartes and read it and be like, oh yeah, that's what I want to do. It just, be, it slowly becomes built into how people think through things. This kind of thing would have been unthinkable in the fourth century. It just never would have happened. You never would have had um, evangelism disconnected from the church. It just never would have happened. It's a, it's a complete and total innovation, um, which is, Sometimes for the good and sometimes for the bad. Um, one last, oh, we're late. One last question, though. Uh, to, yeah. Yeah, there is, but th I, would, I would say that there's a difference between the Wesleys and what Whitfield was doing is the Wesleys um, were very clearly being pressured into separating from the church and never wanting to. Now, again, I agree, they did flaunt the authority of the church, not quite as drastically as Whitfield did, though. Um, they were at least trying to set up congregations and trying to set up um, groups of people, and the whole idea of Methodism was to get people to grow in Christ. That was not anything that Whitfield had going for him. He was primarily drawing sinners to, to the Lord, and so there's at least one step further along in Whitfield, I, I see. But your point's well taken. Um, the church didn't do themselves any favors. I'm not saying that their authority was always good, um, because it wasn't. They did deny them the opportunity to preach in certain areas, so they said, Okay, well, you know, I'll preach where I can. I, I agree. I agree with that. Are you talking about, is that example of Luther rejecting others or of Luther's rejection by the church? I'm sorry, I guess I'm... The church, the Lutheran church? No, the Catholic Okay, okay. So... <clears throat> right. The, again, I think that the difference there is that Luther quite clearly said, well, then I'm not Catholic anymore. Right. But that's not what Whitfield did. Whitfield still would have considered himself a member of the Church of England. He's, he's still... Yeah, I mean, if he, if he had stepped away from the Anglican Church and dissociated with them, he would have had a hard time in the colonies. So he, I, I think that that's a, a key difference. He was... He, he wanted the privilege without the responsibility that comes with that. And Luther took both, right? When Luther separated from the Catholic Church, he was separated from the privileges of the Catholic Church, but also separated from the responsibilities of it. Uh, and so I think that there's a difference there. Although, again, we see that that happens in the, in the life of the church with preachers and teachers at times. Um, and again, I, I, I thank um, Randy for the... the 
picture of the Wesleys doing kind of the same thing. Um, it just seems like this is, again, one step further along on that path of, of removal of individuals and salvation from the church. And you even have Wesley, I think, with something of a, of a right inclination, although wrongly put, where he said it seemed like it was a sin to be saved outside of the doors of a church. I, I think that his heart is, is wrong in that, but at the same time, I think that he, in, in my opinion, I think that he has this, this right sort of inclination of the church's involvement in the salvation of souls has to be central in evangelism. It, it can't be, oh, also, you could probably join a church if you wanted, right? So I, I think that, that Wesley's response probably wasn't the, the right response, um, but it wasn't altogether wrong. It, his inclination wasn't altogether wrong. So, um, all right, we've got people waiting. Hi. <laughs> Faces pressing up against the glass, so we should pray and, uh, and let the children come to Jesus. Um, Father God, I am thankful for, uh, I'm thankful for George Whitfield. I know that there is much in his life which is um, easy to pick apart. I'm thankful that I'm not famous and that no one's going to spend their life um, tearing my life apart in the end. Uh, what a travesty that would be for me. Um, so I'm thankful for him. I'm thankful for the work that you did in him, which you undoubtedly did through him. I pray that, um, that we can learn from the difficulties of his life and, and perhaps the wrong choices that he made and, and draw good and right conclusions from that according to your word. Um, let us never be too hasty to condemn people of the past and, and also never too hasty to make them into the grandest of saints, um, but to know that George Whitfield, like all others, is a sinner saved by grace. Um, and we are thankful for the work that he did in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and pray, Father, that you would continue to do that work through sinners even here today. In Jesus' name, amen.